Welcome to HRI's Next in Health podcast. I'm Laura Robinette, PwC's health industry leader, where I'm responsible for our trust solutions segment. And I'm Igor Belakronitsky, a principal with PwC Strategy End, where I have the good fortune of helping the leading health organizations with their strategies and operating models. And today we're thrilled to have Laura with us as a co-host. So welcome, Laura. And we also have a very timely topic, the Inflation Reduction Act and the impact that it might have on the health industries. And so to talk to us about this, we have two great guests. We have Phil Sclafani, who's a principal who helps pharmaceutical and healthcare companies with their pricing and market access strategies. And we also have Ben Prachi, who's the pharmaceutical and life sciences industry tax leader here at PwC. And fortunately, they have read the Inflation Reduction Act so that you don't have to. Let's get started. Phil, would you tell us what the key provisions of the act are that will have uh, impact on the pharmaceutical industry? Sounds good. Thanks, Igor. Yeah, certainly a dynamic time for the industry as we look at a couple of key changes driven by the Inflation Reduction Act that directly impact pharma. And maybe I'll divide it up into three buckets. So starting out with the pricing reforms, what we're looking at really is when this takes effect for the first time, Medicare will be able to directly negotiate the price of starting out with 10 and increasing to 20 high cost single source prescription drugs. So those are going to be drugs that are high spend, been on the market for at least nine years for small molecules, at least 13 years for biologics, and don't face some competition. So we'll see those drugs as part of this negotiation program when it kicks in. And I'll talk about that timeline a little bit later. It's obviously an important impact for those companies and drugs impacted there, but limited to about 10 to 20 drugs. Second, we've got new inflationary rebates that will take impact in Medicare. And, and this is something you know very similar to what we see in Medicaid with the CPIU penalties and, and something that will impact most pharma manufacturers that take price increases greater than the rate of inflation. So two significant changes impacting the Medicare population, both on the, the Part B and D side. But importantly, pharma came out of this without any price impacts directly in the commercial market. So there was some back and forth and, and how this came through Congress and reconciliation. Any price controls or negotiations were not applied to the commercial market. Taking a look second, actually some things that may be positive for pharma and certainly for patients. There's a number of provisions that expand patient access and affordability. So the big one, really capping Medicare Part D prescription drug at a pocket cost at $2,000 per year for patients. Previously, patients you know, had a little bit of a, a complex journey through Medicare Part D where they're getting a lot of the costs covered, then they would hit the infamous donut hole, and then they'd come through into this catastrophic period, and there was still a pretty significant cost share that patients would face. Now that's capped at 2000 per year, so great for patients and great for pharma that their patients may be able to afford medications a little bit more easily. For those patients on insulin, there is a $35 per month cap for Medicare patients. Again, this was one that there was some potential for it to apply in the commercial market, but only applies for Medicare now. Although we have seen some payers and PBMs move to implement this proactively as well. A couple other terms in here also favorable for patients. So expanded eligibility for low-income subsidy patients, an extension of the Affordable Care Act premium subsidies, as well as certain vaccines now being free for Medicare beneficiaries. So overall, a significant expansion of access and affordability for patients that are great for patients, as well as many of our pharma clients. The third bucket is tax, where I'll turn it over to Ben to talk through the key changes. Sure. Thanks, Phil. A few tax-related items to highlight in the law. 
The first is the 15% book minimum tax, or as the Inflation Reduction Act referred to it, the corporate alternative minimum tax. That tax is a new tax regime applicable to corporations that are taxpayers in the United States if their pre-tax book income, as defined by the law, is over $1 billion on a three-year average basis. For these corporations, they now need to compute an alternative tax liability following rules specifically set out in the Inflation Reduction Act. I'll highlight that what this tax is not is a flat 15% on the pre-tax book income in your publicly filed financial statements. Rather, this tax is a 15% tax rate applied to a new term called applicable financial statement income, specifically defined by the Inflation Reduction Act. What that means is your tax professionals now need to compute a new tax base following these new rules, creating more complexity around U.S. taxes. The second provision I'll mention is the 1% excise tax on stock buybacks. Two key points here. One is that the excise tax is applicable to net issuances. In other words, the amount of buybacks less any stock issued to the public, including as part of employee compensation arrangements. The second is that this tax is computed on the fair market value of the buybacks and any issuances. As always, there's an open question as to how exactly fair market value should be determined for purposes of this provision of the tax law. We expect the U.S. Treasury Department to issue regulations later this year or early next year to clarify this and other key points. Until then, we're working with clients to use their best estimate of how fair market value should be defined for purposes of this excise tax when they think about the potential cost of implementing buybacks after December 31st, 2022. So those are the two key points. And Igor, I'll turn it back to you. Very helpful and certainly a lot to unpack. And we're grateful to have both of you here with us to unpack it. And Phil, in your comments, you mentioned a timeline and it seems like there's a lot happening. There's still some further changes potentially on the horizon. So would you give us a sense for the timeline around implementing all of these new changes? Yeah, sounds good, Igor. Thinking back to the Affordable Care Act, where there were a lot of important changes that rolled out over many years and even up to a decade later, that's kind of the timeline that we're seeing here as we roll out for some changes that will start as soon as next year and roll all the way through 2029. What's a little bit different this time around is that we are seeing a mix of things along the way. So starting in 2023 will be those price inflation penalties taking place. So looking at price increases above the inflation rate, farmers will be expected to pay back those rebates. In addition, we're also seeing the free vaccines that will come in for those that are covered under Part D. As we move from 23 into 24 and 25 is when we'll really start to see a lot of those patient access and affordability pieces take. So the, the $2,000 out-of-pocket cost cap for Part D beneficiaries, the extension of those low-income subsidies for patients. And then 2026 is really going to be a big year because that will be the first year that the price negotiation actually takes effect. Negotiations will start long before that, but because of the way that the Part D cycles work, 2026 will be the first plan year that we see those negotiated prices for certain high-cost drugs. And the program starts phased. So in 2026, we'll see 10 Medicare Part D drugs and 10 of the high-cost drugs that meet all the eligibility will be negotiated. Then as we move to 2027, we see that go up to 15 drugs. And then 2028 will be another big part of the year because we'll see still 15 drugs, but Part B will come in. So a lot of the higher cost oncology treatments, for example, may be negotiated at that point. 
And then in 2029, we see it expand up to 20 Part B and Part D drugs across. So it's a really important phasing as we think about price inflation penalties taking place right away, some of the patient affordability and access kind of happening in the middle, and then 26 through 29 being a big period that we'll see this price negotiation take hold and expand up to the top 20 Medicare drugs. With that, maybe I'll turn it over to Ben. You could talk a little bit about the tax timeline. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Phil. Yeah, a couple of things to note in terms of the timeline as it relates to the tax provisions I mentioned earlier, both the excise tax and the book minimum tax in the case of buybacks, any buyback done after December 31st of 2022. The other item I'll highlight, companies in this industry are also dealing with the provision that was anticipated to be addressed by the law, but was not. And that's the section 174 R&E expenses and the capitalization of those expenses for federal income tax purposes. There was a provision of existing law that went into effect of January 1st of this year of 2022 that requires companies to capitalize R&E expenses common in the health industries in terms of expenses that our clients incur in very material amounts. So for federal income tax purposes under current law, they need to be capitalized and amortized over time, which yields generally a higher cash tax burden on companies in the industry. Now, as I mentioned, the business community was hopeful that the Inflation Reduction Act would repeal that law or extend the implementation date further out in the future, but that did not happen. So clients now are having to, as they look ahead, model out their tax burden, taking into account the new book minimum tax and also the existing 174 capitalization policy that came into effect on January 1st of this year. The good news is that the business community is continuing to lobby for that to be changed in terms of allowing r expenses to be currently deducted as they have been historically. And we're hopeful that in a future legislation package, that law will be changed and in effect put back to the way it has always been. So in terms of the timeline, something to watch for in terms of an event that may happen later this year or early next year, while companies are also simultaneously dealing with the implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act. So a lot in terms of moving parts around taxes, for sure, impacting this industry. Thanks, Ben and Phil. Seems like these implications are pretty far-reaching. I'm really curious about pricing. So maybe, Phil, I'll just start with you. What can we expect with regards to drug pricing? Sure, Laura. Certainly, I think where this has ended up is not the worst case by any stretch that pharma was preparing for. And we'll see the biggest impacts limited to those companies that have the top 10 to 20 Medicare drugs that end up being negotiated. But I think stepping back, I still really see this as significant across the industry, largely because it's the first time in over 30 years we've had this type of price control legislation, really some thinking about, you know, even the inception of the Medicaid and 340B drug rebate programs and discounts we see in 340B. Pharma's had this ability and, and there's a sense in the market that we were able to push back in a lot of these changes and avoid these types of controls. And now we do see one. We didn't quite end up at the point where the commercial market would be included, which would have been much bigger. Definitely limited to Medicare is a positive for pharma, but still we are seeing these types of controls. So as we think about what pharma is likely to do to adapt right away, taking a look at their overall gross to net. So including these new government discounts, the discounts they offer in the commercial market today, other things like copay and patient assistance programs. I think we'll see everybody, as we get closer to 2026, start to take a reevaluation of what those components look like and how they may need to adjust. 
also nearer term, some clients will take a step back and look at kind of their overall SG&A and operations and see where they could make up the gross net impact on some of these. So adjusting some strategic and operational levers to sharpen focus on cost management, maybe accelerate some of their investments in automation and digital and things like that, that could help make up some of this impact. Looking at a little bit longer term, I think we'll probably see some pharma manufacturers begin to reevaluate their future launch prices knowing if they launch something now, there's the possibility that they will have to discount nine or 13 years down the road for small molecules and biologics. So considering that when launching new assets, you know, we've seen mention of some other more out-of-the-box ideas that will have to be tested and potentially litigated, but could there be limited patent settlements that are technically allowing a generic or biosimilar competitor so that you would avoid being part of the negotiation program or maybe creating a subsidiary for a single drug so you could be exempted as a small biotech. A lot of these ideas going about in, in these early days that we'll have to see where those end up. You know, in the extreme, potentially could see the early removal of a product from the U.S. market or shifting of a big strategy for a company in terms of how they enter a market. Yeah, that's probably on the extreme, but not out of the realm of possibility. And then longer term, you know, we'll see, will pharma refocus some of the assets they develop? Do you intentionally look at an asset and forecast that could have a big Medicare population and potentially avoid those types of assets? So far ranging, obviously direct impacts on pricing, but I think we'll also see reconsideration of what's happening in the commercial organization all the way back through R&D. All right. Thanks for that information, Phil. And Ben, maybe you could talk us through the tax implications. They seem pretty major as well. Yeah, Laura, that's right. There are a few things to watch for in addition to the items I've already mentioned. And again, these are items that were not in the bill, but are relevant to our clients as the world around taxes continues to change quickly and become more complex. There are two terms I'll just quickly define that you may have seen in the headlines. One is pillar two. And for our purposes of this discussion, Laura, that really is the global agreement led by the OECD around levels of minimum taxations for large corporate taxpayers around the world. And guilty is the U.S. system for taxing non-U.S. profits. So it's our version of a minimum tax for profits earned outside of the United States. And the key takeaway for today is that our guilty system is not compliant with the Pillar 2 model minimum tax system. And many observers expected the Inflation Reduction Act to potentially make our guilty system compliant with the Pillar 2 regime. Since that didn't happen, companies now have to look ahead and think about how the new tax system, including the provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act, interact with the new Pillar 2 rules that are quickly being released and adopted around the globe. All of that means the world is getting more complex around taxes and don't go it alone. Make sure that the tax professionals in your organizations have a seat at the table because you'll require their input and modeling to understand what the tax burden is relative to the business decisions that you make every day. So Phil and Ben, so far we've been talking about the impact on the pharma companies, which of course is the biggest one. And you also mentioned the impact on the consumers, which is really beneficial and will improve access. But can you talk about other impacts on the other participants in the whole healthcare ecosystem? What are the implications for them? Yeah. And to your point, I do think we'll see impacts across the value chain in a couple different ways, certainly for Medicare plan sponsors and PBMs with those patient out-of-pocket cost caps and some of the other impacts of the law here. I think the obvious concern for them will be how do they absorb this increased cost from the patient out-of-pocket cost being limited? 
And this potentially could have some ramifications thinking about, do they have to increase utilization management and step therapies and maybe limit access to some of these drugs to be able to absorb the cost of what's not coming from patients anymore? That potentially has downstream impact to pharma clients. It's good for pharma if their patients can afford medication more easily, but it won't be great if the payer response is to then implement utilization management and other things that tighten overall spend a little bit. For all payers, PBMs and wholesalers, I think they're probably taking a look at their inflation assumptions for pharma prices and how much they expect for WAC price increases and looking at those is potentially going down now. And for anybody that has a revenue model or fees based on WAC, that will be a revenue impact potentially going forward. For patients, I mean, pretty much all positive on the surface here that we'll see more patients being able to afford starting therapy, potentially be more adherent to therapy over time, that they're not forced to discontinue therapy for financial reasons. Again, the concern to watch out for will be, does it actually make it a little bit harder to get access to certain drugs because of maybe payers implementing utilization management? And then maybe just one last interesting tidbit to throw in is, is we've already seen some signs in the private equity market that for certain drugs that could potentially be negotiated after nine years, it's not really enough exclusivity on market to pay back a private equity investment. We see some PEs already reassessing where they're investing now and trying to crystal ball into the future. If they're going to invest in an asset that could be part of this negotiation process, then it does introduce a more riskier profile to that investment. So certainly far ranging beyond the direct impacts in pharma and payers, we'll see things that impact wholesalers, hospitals, patients, and all the way on to private equity firms that drive a lot of the early stage investment in pharma. Very interesting and lots to unpack. And we'll look forward to having you back perhaps early next year to talk about some of the early impacts and market moves resulting from this Inflation Reduction Act. But really grateful for a great conversation and all the insights from every aspect of this new legislation. So thank you, Ben, and thank you, Phil, for joining us. And Laura, thank you for co-hosting. For more on these topics and other health industry insights driven by policy, innovation, and care delivery changes, please visit our website at pwc.com forward slash HRI. Until next time, this has been Next in Health. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.